listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, so, so we're looking at the Beatitudes. We've been doing this uh, since last week. I, I've, I've been really encouraged. You know, I can, when I preach, I just mention how I can see everyone. I, I certainly can, and people don't realize when you're in the pews. I, I really get a good sense of who's with me and who's not, and, uh, and, and just getting a vibe. Even with the, with the bottom floor with the mask on, you know, you can tell a lot by looking into someone's eyes. But I'm encouraged because I'm getting good vibes. I feel like what we've been talking about, it's, it's really falling on good soil. It's good. We are going to be taking communion, sharing communion together, by the way, at the end of the service. So if you don't yet have communion elements, would you raise your hands? And uh, we want to make sure everybody's served. It looks like we're good on the floor. And we have a couple over here at the balcony, uh, over here to my left, Angela. All right, so last week we looked at the very first beatitude, blessed to the poor in spirit. We're going to look at the uh, second one in just a moment. But here's what I would encourage you to do. I, I've already mentioned this a couple times. I would love for everybody here that's part of Village to memorize the Beatitudes. Have them memorized. How many of you have already been working on that with me? Okay, that's good. Maybe you've already got them memorized. I talked to somebody earlier in the week and they said, I'm halfway through. That's fantastic. I want you to memorize them. And as you memorize them, I want you to begin to utilize them in prayer. Pray through the Beatitudes, hopefully on a daily basis, even throughout your day, carry them with you. And pray the Beatitudes with deep reflection. Let these words uh, just sink into the soil of your hearts. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was having a discussion with uh, Richard Harris, and he gave me an illustration that I, I told him I'm going to steal it and use it. How many of you have seen the movie The Karate Kid? All right, everybody here just about. I know there's a handful that haven't, but... Um, in the movie Karate Kid, you know, there's this main character named Daniel, young high school kid. He, keep, he keeps getting beat up at school. And, uh, and, and somehow or another, he meets a guy named Mr. Miyagi, a maintenance man at his apartment complex. Mr. Miyagi, who's, who turns out he's like this karate master, karate genius. And so Daniel wants Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate. And for a while, Mr. Miyagi puts it off. But... Over the course of events, something happens, and Mr. Miyagi finally decides reluctantly that he's going to take him under his wing, and he's going to train him in karate. And so Daniel's all excited. He shows up at Mr. Miyagi's house to learn karate, and the first thing Mr. Miyagi does is he hands him a paint can with a paintbrush, and he says, you're going to paint my fence. And he shows him specifically how he wants him to do it. You know, you don't paint side by side like a daisical. He says, up, down, very deliberate motion, up, down. And then, uh, so Daniel finishes. He finishes... Uh, painting his fence. And the next time he shows up, Mr. Miyagi wants him to sand his deck. And he shows him very specifically how to sand his deck with very deliberate motions, side to side. And, um, and then he has him wax his cars. He's got like 20 cars. And he shows him specifically, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. And, and, he, and he tells him, you have to do it this way. Well, Daniel starts getting frustrated. Because he came to Mr. Miyagi to learn karate, 
And, and eventually, I mean, his frustration boils over and he says, I, I want to learn karate here. You've been all I've been doing is I've been doing all your chores. I've painted your fence. I've sanded your deck. I've waxed your cars. When are we going to learn karate? And his frustration eventually reaches a boil po boiling point. It just explodes. And, uh, and, and so what happens, and I, I don't want to spoil it for you, <laughs> but you've had 40 years just about, <laughs> is... Mr. Miyagi just, um, he just begins to unleash these attacks. He begins chopping and punching and kicking. And Daniel, just instinctively, using the same motions that he was learning when he was painting the fence and sanding the deck and, and waxing the cars, he uses those exact same motions to block every single one of Mr. Miyagi's attacks. Because what was happening, it just dawns on him that the whole time I was learning karate, these motions that I was using to wax the car and so forth were becoming so ingrained into my muscle memory so that when the heat of the moment came, when the attack came, it just instinctively flowed out of Daniel. It was just, it had become second nature. Folks, this is what we're doing when we memorize and pray the Beatitudes. Whether you realize it or not, as the Holy Spirit's getting involved and we're praying the Beatitudes, these Beatitudes are slowly, gradually retraining our brains how to think. And we're learning how to see differently. So that over time, gradually, by the Holy Spirit's power, we are becoming the kinds of people who, in the heat of the moment, when life's trials emerge, we can respond correctly in the way of Jesus. So I want you to pray the Beatitudes with you. Does that make sense? Isn't that a great illustration? I'm just such a smart person, you know? <laughs> All right. Lots of laughter in the room for those who were listening to the podcast. I was being facetious. Okay, so let's look at the second Beatitude. This is the one we'll be looking at this weekend. Matthew chapter, or yeah, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus announces, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want us to pause and pray just before we really dig in here. And we're going we're gonna to get deep really quick. And I want us to pray and just redirect our hearts. And as we pray, I want us to include uh, one of the ladies in our church, Ides. Just yesterday, she lost her father. And this is a very appropriate beatitude uh, for Ides and for all of those who are grieving. Let's pray for her. Also, I want us to pray for, for Grace. Where's Grace? There's Grace. Grace is last Sunday with us until she moves, right? And you're moving to Ohio, correct? And going to School of Music. So let's, let's pray for Grace. We're going to be grieving our loss and uh, look forward to, to seeing you again very soon. But let's pray for Grace as well, okay? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love towards us, your goodness, your enduring, abiding presence in our lives. Right now, just we pause before this sermon on blessed are those who mourn, and we want to remember our sister in Christ, Ides, here today, who's grieving the loss of her dad. I pray that your comforting peace would be with her. Help her to sense your presence in a tangible way. And let it be through the extension of the body of Christ the men and women who have gathered here at Village, may we be present to her and her family insofar as we have opportunity and influence in her life. May we be an extension of your comforting presence. Lord, we pray for grace as she moves across the country and for, her, for Jill, her family, God. Uh, it's a difficult 
you know, unsettling season, but we know that your hand is on grace and you have formed her and shaped her for a particular purpose. And she is on the journey of becoming the woman of God that you've called her to be with unique skills and gifts and talents. And she wants to use them for your glory. And I'm so grateful to see her exploring that. Let your hand just continue to be upon grace, protect her, watch over her, surround her with godly influences. Just be in her midst. And Lord, today as we Dig into your word. May we open our hearts and our minds as best we know how today and allow your spirit to speak to us through the frailty of a human communicator. May your voice be heard and may we receive whatever you want to plant into the soil of our hearts today and may it bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to give you right off the bat two Greek words, and then there will be no more Greek. But the first one is going to be the Greek word for mourn there. You know, when you look at the English word mourn, we tend to associate mourning with one particular form of loss and grief, and that is the loss of a loved one. Blessed are those who mourn. We think of losing the death of a loved one. But the Greek word there for mourn, it's the word penthos. And, and the word penthos is much broader. It encompasses a broad range of sadness. That includes the loss of a loved one, but it, it also encompasses all kinds of forms of loss. It can mean, you know, the loss of a job, the loss of uh, your, your dignity, having suffered abuse at someone's hands. It can include, you know, receiving a devastating medical diagnosis, experiencing a miscarriage. All kinds of forms of loss are included in this beatitude. And then the second Greek word is the word for comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The Greek term there, it's a combination of two small Greek words, but it's the term parakaleo. Everybody say parakaleo. And the word parakaleo does mean comfort, but it also carries with it the implication of an encounter. So it's not just blessed are those who mourn for they shall receive comfort, but blessed are those who mourn for they will encounter comfort. Or better yet, they will encounter one who will bring comfort. It's very interesting. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is going to use a very related Greek term, parakletos, to refer to the Holy Spirit, who is called the comforter. So I'm going to give you just my own paraphrased version of this beatitude that I think will serve us well today. Watch this. Blessed are those who are living with deep sorrow and grief, for they are prime candidates to encounter one who will bring comfort. Amen. While grief is always unpleasant, it can serve a very healthy purpose in our lives. For one thing, grief strips away our delusions of control, having control of our own life. It reveals our limits, our powerlessness as mortal human beings. Grief also, and, and listen to this very closely, because this is really the essence of my message. Grief carves space into our souls. It's, it's very painful, obviously. But grief carves a void into our soul, and for those who are willing, God promises to fill that void in beautiful, unanticipated ways. 
Now, if you've never had to grieve significantly, if you've never been through deep, profound sorrow, then you have somewhat of a limited capacity to experience the grace of God, the glory of God in your life. I'm not saying you can't experience it. I'm just saying whatever experience you have is going to be somewhat shallow, maybe even superficial, because it's the hard work of profound grief and sorrow that carves the space necessary in order to experience God at greater depths. Does that make sense? There's something else that grief does that's very important for us to reflect on today. Grief and sorrow sow the seeds of compassion into our hearts. That word compassion, just looking at the construction of the word, it literally means shared suffering. It's one of the deep mysteries of humankind. God has so created human beings in, in such a way that mourning, although necessary, can actually be shared. Now, if you've never been through stuff, if you've never been through deep mourning and grief, it's hard for you to share somebody else's grief because you don't know what it's like. You haven't been through it. You don't understand. You can't relate to it. But if you have been through deep, profound grief and mourning and sadness in your life, you can relate to somebody else's burden who's going through it. Therefore, you have some of the inherent resources necessary to share the grief of a brother and sister. And when somebody's grieving, and they're doing it all alone, apart from loved ones, and they're isolated in their grief, their pain becomes unbearable. <clears throat> but as long as I can access my pain in a community of people who love me, who know me, who believe me, and who are stepping into my pain and bearing it with me, somehow or another, it lessens the weight that I have to carry. And you see, this is where the church of Jesus Christ becomes indispensable. And this is where the church has to be present. Because we live in a society here in America, Walter Brueggemann says that we are a society that has been schooled in denial. And we don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to mourn. We're uncomfortable with sadness. We're ashamed of our sadness. You see this, I think, on social media when People in general get on Facebook, they get on Twitter, Instagram, all these platforms. People tend, in general, to project an image of their lives. Not their real life, per se, just a slice of their life, an image of their life that projects happiness. We want everybody to see our highlights. Here's where we ate dinner last night. Here's my son's accomplishment in racquetball or whatever. He won the gold medal and whatever. We project certain aspects of our life that communicate an image of happiness. It's something that I think is common to human nature. And those things about our lives that are not so happy, we tend to hide. We tend to be ashamed of it. We, we don't, we, we don't want to project that part of our lives. I think social media, social media actually makes it worse because what happens is we tend to get on Facebook and we see everybody's highlights and then we start comparing their highlights to our blooper reel, so to speak. And for those who are enduring grief and sadness, it just drives us deeper into it. 
But here's, I think, the greatest tragedy of all is that within American evangelicalism, in many circles, we've absorbed this vibe of projected happiness. And so Sunday mornings, in large part, become a place where we, we've just created this happy, clappy church culture where happiness is the only acceptable emotion. And if people walk in and they're not happy, they, need, they almost feel the pressure to project this artificial facade of happiness. They, we feel like we have to hide our sadness because, it's our, because as Christians, it's our spiritual duty to be happy all the time. As a pastor, throughout my, my life, I've heard people talk like this. They'll, they'll make these kinds of comments. They'll say, you know, Pastor Ryan, the reason I haven't been in church the last few weeks, I just, man, I, I'm going through some stuff. And I just don't, I haven't felt up to coming to church. Man, I'm just, I'm just not happy enough to come to church. It's a very common way of thinking, but it's also a very modern way of thinking. People didn't think like that 200 years ago, 500, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. It's a very modern way of thinking. I'm just, I'm just not happy enough. Man, I'm broken. I'm going through some stuff. I just can't bring myself to go to church. It's a very modern way of thinking, but it's a burden that we have placed on ourselves that we do not need. I want to show you a symbol on the, on the screen, the cross. Let's spend a moment just reflecting on the cross for a moment. What is the cross? The cross is a symbol of death, right? It's a symbol of death that's been transformed by resurrection, but death is not ignored. Death is included. And we over 2,000 years, this has been the symbol of Christianity. This emblem of death. And we cherish it because of the one who died on the cross. And yes, three days later, he raised from the grave, but he also died. And Good Friday is part of that story. So it's a symbol of death that's been transformed by resurrection because death itself has been transformed by resurrection. There's one who went down into death, blew it up from the inside out, and on the third day rose again. His name is Jesus Christ. So the cross is the symbol of Christianity. It has been for nearly 2,000 years. And, and you know, symbols are powerful. You know, you're driving down the road and you just see those golden arches and you know exactly what it is. It's McDonald's. <clears throat> you see that Nike swoosh and you know exactly what it is. You see that Apple logo with the bite taken out of it, you know what it represents. Symbols are extremely powerful. And the symbol of the Christian faith for nearly 2,000 years has been the cross. This emblem of death and suffering that's been transformed by resurrection. It's our symbol, and it's a very appropriate symbol. But I'm afraid what we've begun to do is we've begun to change the symbol of the Christian faith into something else, something a little bit more like this. Now, I gotta be honest, I, I am not a huge fan of the smiley face guy. I don't hate him. I mean, how could you hate him? Look at him. He's obviously very happy. No doubt about that. So you can't hate the guy. But let's just be honest, he's pretty stupid, isn't he? I mean, he doesn't have a brain in his head. Because if all you do is smile all the time, that's just evidence enough that you don't get it. 
There's a time to smile. There's also a time to weep. But this guy never does anything but have this big dumb grin on his face. Now I'm talking about the symbol of Christianity here. Go back to the cross. See, that's what we want. There's beauty, there's mystery, there's real depth here. There's a seriousness to it. There's a dignity to the cross. But I think what's begun to happen, maybe over the last few decades, but I've, I've just noticed it in recent years especially, is, is I think what's happened is in many circles, we've gone from serious Christianity to just inspirational, motivational, soundbite Christianity. And in some corners, it's degenerated further into just silly, insipid Christianity. And, and eventually people recognize it for what it is and they walk away from it. Particularly millennials. Because it's cheap, it, it's, it's weak, it's watered down, it's unsatisfying. I don't mean to sound cynical. I, I'm not a cynic at all. I promise you that. But sometimes in order for us to apprehend truth and move forward in the way of Jesus, we have to be real with some of the counterfeits. We have to be real with some of the distractions and the things that uh, clamor for our attention that pull us off the course and be real about it and call it out. And I think what's, what's a great tragedy within America, here within Christianity, is that many, I'm not going to say most at all, but I think many American pulpits have taken the rich, deep theology of the cross and we've traded it in for just an American pop psychology of happiness. And, and like I said, we've created this happy, clappy church culture where people walk in, they feel like if I'm not happy, if I don't have a smile on my face, then I'm not sure I can fit in, I'm not sure I belong. And if people walk in and they feel sad and broken, they feel... They feel disconnected because there's something inherently wrong with that. And if somebody's sad, we see it as a problem that needs to be fixed immediately. So instead of weeping with those who weep, we want to come alongside of them and just cheer them up. And, and here's why we want to cheer them up. It's not for their sake, it's for our sake. We're uncomfortable with pain. We're uncomfortable with their sadness. We're uncomfortable with their grief. And, and so we want to attempt to cheer them up, not for their sake, but because, come on, man, you're bumming me out here. You're spoiling the mood. I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm not used to being around people like this. Come on, we're Christians. We're supposed to be the happy people. Come on, get happy. And that's not what the scriptures teach us to do. We're taught rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who are weeping. And here's why we're taught weep with those who weep. Somehow or another, God has designed human beings in a way that mourning, though necessary, mourning can actually be shared so that if I will enter into your pain with you, if some of your brothers and sisters can come around and enter into your grief, dive into your sorrow, and begin to share some of the weight of that, somehow or another, there's a certain amount of grieving that you don't have to do. 
I don't know how it works. I can't explain it. It's a profound mystery. But I'm just telling you what I've observed in life is that when certain things happen, like, for example, the death of a loved one, which is probably the most profound sorrow there is, but when you lose a loved one, there's a certain amount of grieving that has to be done. And if I'm left all to myself to grieve, to wallow in my pain, it is unbearable. But if I have a handful of people who can come around me and share that grief and share that burden and share that suffering, there's a certain amount of grieving now that I don't have to do. And it's one of the beautiful aspects of being a part of a church family long term. This is one of the most indispensable parts of the body of Christ, to belong to the body of Christ. But you see, in order to be this kind of community, it means we've got to be willing to slow down the pace of our lives, slow down the pace of our ministries, and give real attention to one another. Rather than just trying to fix people from afar, God calls us to incarnate his love to one another and share one another's grief, share one another's pain. Because when when, when people are hurting, when people are in sorrow and mourning, we need more than answers. We need one another. See, Christopher Smith and John Pattison wrote this in their book, Slow Church. Great book. It's easy to lob advice and judgment when a friend's marriage is falling apart. It's more complex and more demanding to sit down with the couple, to listen, to work slowly and conversationally toward healing, to celebrate reconciliation or to grieve a divorce. See, this, this is what the church is to be. This is what cruciform relationships look like, and it costs us something to do this. Now, understand a couple things. First of all, you can't give this level of personal attention to every person you know. Let's be real about that. Like everybody in Village Church, you can't be this kind of relational influence in everybody's life. We have to recognize our limits as finite human beings, and that includes me. And also, this kind of relational depth doesn't just instantaneously appear. It's something that's cultivated over a long period of time. And trust is built over time. But this is, again, what cruciform relationships look like. This is what the church is called to be. There ought to be within Village Church a, a small handful of people, at least one or two, over time, people that you have built solid ground with. You've invested into one another's lives. So when they're going through something like this, you're, you're going to be compelled to do more than just give advice from afar. You're going to enter into the situation. I just had to walk through this with one of our close friends this past year. And it cost us a lot, but it also, there's nothing more rewarding than seeing the grace of God at work in somebody's life up close. But there are people in these pews, there are people watching this live stream right now, and you're hurting. You're carrying around some deep burdens, and you're not called to bear it alone. You're also not called to bear your soul to everybody here. But we need to allow the Holy Spirit at the appropriate time to show us who can we reveal our burdens to because that's what it means to be part of the church, the community of faith. 
Now let me state this very clearly. The local church is not called to be the happiest place in town. We are called to be havens of authenticity. Where else in Los Angeles are people going to feel the liberty and freedom to be real and to bring their authentic self other than the community of the crucified, those who are following Jesus Christ? Because we of all people, we ought to be in touch and in tune with the reality that our worth and our value and our identity comes solely from God and the love demonstrated on the cross. That's where our worth comes from. Therefore, I'm not getting worth and value from anybody's opinions. Therefore, now I have a foundation to be real and be authentic with the appropriate people at the appropriate time. But I think this authenticity is first cultivated within our own relationship with the Lord. And I want, to, I want to make sure this is a strong point today. And I want you to listen. More than anything else, God wants your authenticity. When you enter into prayer, bring your authentic self. God can handle it. God can handle your prayers of grief and frustration. God can handle your prayers of anger and confusion and rage. None of that threatens God's ego. God welcomes it. We see it with David, with Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Moses, Abraham, so many others. God's not intimidated by your honesty and your authenticity. I think what saddens God is when we hide those emotions or pretend like they don't exist. One of the things that I've been doing the last few years that I think has really helped me cultivate this is praying the Psalms. You know, the book of Psalms, it's the longest book of the Bible, right in the middle, 150 Psalms. And can I be honest with you guys? I used to like, I'm tempted to say I hate, uh, that's too strong of a word. I tempted to not like the book of Psalms. I just wasn't a fan of the Psalms only because I, I'm not a big fan of poetry. But I was confusing the whole purpose of the Psalms. You don't read the Psalms. You don't study the Psalms. You pray the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are, are meant for. They're meant for, to, to be utilized in prayer. The book of Psalms is the original Jewish prayer book. It's how they've been used for 3,000 years. Jesus prayed the Psalms. We know that. Even on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His disciples, the early Christians, memorized and prayed the Psalms. And so I've learned to do this, to pray the Psalms. And here's how I do it. It's not the only way to do it, but it's the way that I've learned to do it. There are 150 Psalms. There are 365 days of the year. I pray one psalm a day. On January 1st, I begin with Psalm 1, January 2, Psalm 2, January the 3rd, Psalm 3. I go all the way through the 150 psalms. On the 151st day of the year, I start over. If I will do that every day for an entire year, I will have prayed through the entire book of Psalms roughly two and a half times. Now here's the interesting thing about the book of Psalms. You'll notice that the psalms come in different varieties. Like some of the psalms are really upbeat, exciting, rejoicing, uplifting. Then there's a whole lot of the psalms that are depressing, mournful, gloomy. In fact, 
you can take all 150 psalms and basically put them in one of three categories. The first category of psalms is this. Oh, Lord, please don't let me fall into the pit. Don't let me fall into the pit, please. That's the first category. The second category of psalms is, oh, God, I've fallen into the pit. Please get me out. Please rescue me. Oh, this is horrible. My enemies are surrounding me on every side. And then the third category of psalm is, thank God I'm not in the pit anymore. You've rescued me from the pit. Rejoice. So you got a lot, you, you, you got these psalms that cover a wide range of human emotions, but what I've learned to do is I just simply take the psalms as they come. I don't pick and choose which psalm I'm going to pray based on what mood I happen to feel that morning. And here's why, because Brian Zahn says this in his memoir, Water to Wine. He says, we pray the psalms not to express what we feel, but to learn to feel what they express. I like that. Now, I used to do this differently. I used to wake up in the morning and try to pick and choose a psalm based on my mood that morning. I, I, I would wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm, I'm feeling in a pretty chipper mood today. Let me find a nice chipper psalm to pray. Here we go. I've since learned that's a very self-centered approach. It's all centered around me. And what I've realized is, is that even if I may not personally have something to grieve, there are people right here at Village Church who are grieving. I, I preached a memorial service just yesterday for Lorena's father-in-law. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the message, I lost her father yesterday. There are people in our church who are grieving a, a horrible medical diagnosis that they've been living with. There are people all around the world encountering deep, profound pain of all kinds. It's healthy for me to take my eyes off of myself and enter into their pain and grieve with them and hurt with them and weep with those who weep. So I, I just, I, I ignore my personal feelings and I take the Psalms as they come because even on my worst day, there's something to rejoice in. And even on my best day, if I'll just look around for a few moments, I'll find something to mourn. So I take them as they come. And if it's one of those psalms of rejoicing that particular day, then I rejoice. But if it's one of those psalms of lament, that's the word that we've lost, I think, that we need to recover. One of those psalms of lament, one of those psalms of pain and weeping, then I, I choose to enter into the throne room of God and participate in the hard work of lamentation that must be done by God's people. Because when we never learn how to lament, how to enter into people's grief and grieve with them, when we, when we never step into one another's shoes and weep with those who weep, we're just like the silly smiley face that doesn't get it. There's a time to smile. There's a time to also open your eyes and say, my God, what has happened? What pain, what, what hurts these, these people in Kabul, Afghanistan right now? What deep fear. Their lives are, are, are in a tailspin. What desperation they must be feeling for their families, specifically the women of Afghanistan. What, what are they feeling right now? I must enter into that. I must grieve with them and hurt with them and feel that with them. Village, listen, this is an essential part of our formation in Christ. 
Because it's through the hard work of lament and mourning and grieving that space is being carved into our souls that prepares us to receive the prophetic word of comfort. Here's another way of saying it. You can't just live in Easter Sunday. I know that we think we can in American evangelicalism. You can't. It, eventually, it just becomes a facade, and it's cheap, and it's fake, and it's weak, and people recognize it for what it is. You can't live in Easter Sunday. You access Easter Sunday through Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Because our gospel is not a cheap formula. It's a story. And every story has a plot line. And the simplest form of our plot line is death, burial, resurrection. So listen to me. You're going to go through seasons and moments of your life that are going to feel like Good Friday. Where you will encounter profound sorrow and pain. And you'll become disillusioned, perhaps with God. And you'll experience confusion and you, 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 will, you will sense that you've lost control of your life or some aspect of your life. And you might even feel like you've lost hope. You will also go through seasons and moments of your life that are going to feel a whole lot like Holy Saturday. Where it might be said that God is dead in a certain sense. Where, where, where God seems absent. And, and things just feel empty in your life. And, and every prayer you pray, it just feels like it hits the ceiling. And you're like, where is God? But listen, it's through the suffering and the sorrow of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And that's what leads us into the gracious surprise of Easter Sunday. And new life. And resurrection. Where Jesus comes to you personally and looks you in the eyes and says, peace be with you. Fear not, I have overcome. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. But you have to get to it honestly. That's why I appreciate the season of Lent. Because it prepares us. It takes us on the journey leading to the cross that prepares us for Easter Sunday. So that Easter Sunday, now, after 40 days of that journey of self-denial and hurt and pain and, and walking through that journey with Jesus, when Easter Sunday hits, now it's going to mean something. It's going to knock you out. But listen, our gospel is not Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. It's Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Even though our final destiny is one of eternal celebration, the Christian life is not all smiles and cheerfulness and good feelings. Each one of you in this room, you will have moments and seasons of your life where you are going to bear excruciating sorrow. And it will seem as though God is absent. But it is only through Good Friday and Holy Saturday that we can access Easter Sunday. And that requires that we know how to lament. When it's time to mourn, we're going to mourn. When we see the brokenness of the world, we're going to mourn over it. When we see a brother or sister in this room who's enduring profound sadness, we're going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and dive into it with them. Because in doing so, space is being carved 
into our soul that God fully intends to fill with his eternal goodness and blessing and joy. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to share communion. Go ahead and get your packets open. One day we're going to put away these packets. I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. I want to give you just a, a meditation, a reflection on, on the elements of communion as it relates to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. For many, many, many centuries, one of the greatest challenges to the Judeo-Christian faith has been the question, if God is good, if God is loving, if God in some senses, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipowerful, omnipotent. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there such profound suffering and sadness? Why do these things happen? If there is a good, loving God, why do babies get brain cancer? You know, just to make it raw and specific. And theologians for hundreds of years have wrestled with this. They've debated it. They've tried to come up with explanations. And some of them are interesting, some of them more compelling than others. But I think all of them ultimately fall short. But I think when we uh, ponder the cross, we look at what's happening there. I think the most powerful statement that we can say about this issue, this challenge, however someone attempts to resolve it, is that on the cross, we see a God who is not aloof to human suffering. We see a God who doesn't stand cold and distant, far away, watching human suffering. But on the cross, we see a God who is revealed as one who's willing to dive headfirst into the worst of it. A God who says, here's my answer to your question. I'm going to bear it with you. I'm going to enter into your pain. I'm going to bear that sin. I'm going to bear that evil, that suffering, that pain to the very depths, the very dregs of the cup. I'm going to drink it all so that we understand that we're not alone, that God does not distance and apart from our pain, but God is one who grieves with us. We see it a few days before the cross when Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the grave. And just before he does that, he sees the grief and the mourning on the faces of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And I just think it's very interesting that knowing what he's about to do, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus to life, Jesus weeps, he's moved, he's hurting with them. So for those of us in this room that are hurting, you're carrying deep grief and sorrow, I just want you to know that God doesn't stand aloof to your pain. On the cross, as we meditate on the cross, you know, there's so many meanings, so many facets to it, but one of them is just understanding that God is solidifying himself 
with your pain. With everything that's ugly about the human experience, Jesus is willing to bear it on himself. But here's the other side of the coin. Jesus bears sin, he bears the evil, he bears the, the suffering and the pain of the world so that through resurrection, he can bring eternal healing and peace and restoration and make it all right. And that's what we're looking forward to. We're looking back on his cross. We're also looking forward to the marriage supper of the lamb, which the communion also points forward to when all shall be made well. So with these thoughts in mind, I want us to enter into communion. I want us to remember Christ on the cross. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to know that we're deeply loved and you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you took the worst that the human experience endures and you put it on yourself, solidifying yourself with our pain and with the pain of every individual in this room. Those that are abused, Lord, you were abused. Those who were beaten, you, you were beaten. Those who have been mocked, you were mocked. Thank you, Lord, that you are our great comforter. And I pray for those that are mourning and hurting, Lord, that they would encounter you in a powerful way, that, that grief and sorrow would do the work of carving that void so that they can encounter you at much greater depths and experience the wonder of who you are. That was revealed perfectly on the cross 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.